0: Turn with me to uh, Matthew. Uh, we're going to be in chapter six this morning, um, in verse twenty-five. This is a well-known teaching of Jesus, and I think it's placed in often in the category of comforting. Uh, but I, I think it also is a kind rebuke for a lot of us. And we're going to dwell in this passage. What I pray for you is that if this is indeed a rebuke for your worrying heart, that you would feel the kindness of the Lord's rebuke. He disciplines those He loves. And He's goading you to trust Him. Okay, uh, Let's read together starting in verse 25. If you have a Pew Bible, it's page 811. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field; how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added To you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, I don't know if you're aware of this dynamic. I think you are, but when we teach from the Bible, we're not just teaching you what the Bible says. Hopefully, ideally, we're teaching you how to read it for yourself. Um, We want you to walk away from Uh, from these sermons, not only encouraged in the faith, not only more aware of who God is and what He's like and what He's done for us, um, but able, perhaps more able, to approach the Scriptures yourself and to open them up with confidence and to draw conclusions that are likewise encouraging And likewise, teach you more of God, who He is and what He's done and what He's like, and how you can follow Him. So, I'm going to refer to one of these things that we consistently point out, which is context. You can't really understand a passage outside of context. This is not unique to the Bible, by the way. Every book works this way. If you don't understand the context of any passage, you're you're not going to walk away with probably... A right understanding of that passage. So I want to I talk really quickly about this word context. What do we mean when we say context? Well, pretty uh, multidimensional. And what I mean is there's not just one context. Uh, let me explain. Sometimes when we say pay attention to the context of this passage, what we're actually saying is look at the grammar and the vocabulary and the sentence structure within and surrounding immediately in the passage. Does that make sense? So, for instance, in this passage, this passage begins with, therefore. Well, a lot of people teach this passage and don't even deal with therefore, and that's actually taking the passage out of context, because that single word is a signal to look at what Jesus just said. Does that make sense? So in that case, when we say context, what we're talking about is, is just the, the, the sentence structure, the vocabulary, the preceding paragraph, and the, um, and the prior paragraph. Uh, and, we, and, and when we say, look at the context, sometimes that's just what we mean. And we also say, pay attention to the context, and we're talking on a broader level, like the book Right? You're not going to understand. Even if you understand the grammatical situation, the vocabulary within and before and after the passage, even if you understand kind of what the passage means in its own right, you will miss, perhaps, the broad force of the passage if you take it out of the book context. Matthew is doing something with his book. John is... Doing something with his book. In fact, some of the books that I, I like a lot because it makes everything really easy tell us exactly what they're doing. For instance, in John, he says, Jesus did a lot of things, but I'm writing these things so that you would know him and have life, right? Like that's, so there's a broad book purpose, right? And understanding the book as a whole is important for understanding individual passages within it. And that's sometimes what we're talking about when we say context. But there is a broader context, and that is the biblical context. You can't indeed understand any single passage fully in the Scriptures without having understood broadly the direction of the Scriptures. All right? Let me repeat that in a couple different ways. You can't understand what Jesus says in this passage in Matthew without not only grasping what Matthew is saying generally in his book, but grasping how Matthew is contributing to the direction of the scriptures, the the whole Bible. All right. And so sometimes when we say context, we mean context on this global level, on this Uh, to use the academic term, canonical level. The whole Bible is pointing in a direction, and each individual portion of the Bible is contributing to that direction. And then sometimes the passages are written assuming you're aware of what's happened before that time, right? Um, Sometimes you're going to read something. For instance, we've done this several times in Matthew. Uh, probably about a dozen. Um, But there are moments in Matthew that really only make sense when you understand moments of Israel's history. Right? Sometimes Matthew's telling you a story, for instance, of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and it seems like just a bizarre account of some weird things that happen unless you take that and you place it over the framework of the Exodus. And all of a sudden, it has force and meaning that seemed invisible. But your awareness of the Scriptures unlocked in some way a fuller understanding of that passage. Does that make sense? So today, we are going to draw back to the broadest level of context to understand this passage. The danger, I think, of teaching Jesus is that it's very easy because a lot of people, not just Christians, but a lot of people are are vaguely aware of things that Jesus has said, right? Especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And the trouble with Jesus' teaching, or in trying to interpret Jesus' teaching, is that you can very easily just deal with these words and draw broad conclusions about anxiety or worry. And, And maybe those conclusions are going to be most of the way on target with the passage. But Jesus is speaking to a dynamic that is addressed over and over in the Scriptures. And if you're unaware of that, then it will become merely a passage about, don't worry about stuff. God takes care of people. See what I mean? And then, what's the distinction between the Sermon on the Mount and pop psychology? Okay? So, what I want to do is I want to draw back to the biblical context And I want to show you where I think this passage is grounded. And then I think we'll have a lot of time this week and next week to deal with the implications. So, the Exodus is the backdrop of the New Testament. Now, that is a very broad statement, and it's a little bit um, limiting in that the Exodus story is one of several pillar narratives upon which all of our understanding of salvation and the dynamics of Christ's work and His rescue and His coming kingdom are understood. But key to our understanding of redemption is the Exodus story. It is often referenced. It is perpetually referenced in the Scriptures to help us understand not only what has happened to us, but what we are, 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 are pacing toward and where we are currently right now. Right? All over the New Testament is this allusion, citation, explicit reference to the Exodus story. What is the Exodus story? You've probably seen it. If your only awareness of the Exodus story is like by way of Charlton Heston and uh, the Prince of Egypt cartoon, you need to read the actual Bible, um, but vaguely, broadly, let me just give you a a wireframe of the Exodus story. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God sent His servant Moses to proclaim their freedom, right? And God worked miraculously in Egypt to free His people, right? And, And the culmination of that miraculous event Was their redemption by the blood of an innocent lamb? All right? The Passover, where the innocent lamb's blood was painted over the threshold of God's people's homes, and death did not visit them that night. They were redeemed by the blood of an innocent, and then they were escorted out of slavery toward a promised land. Immediately thereafter, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, right? And on the other side of the waters of the Red Sea, as a community governed by God, and as the Spirit leads them, they pace through the wilderness, and that journey culminates in the the deliverance of the faithful into the promised land, okay? So that enslaved, redeemed, washed, from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, that dynamic is what I'm referring to as the Exodus story or the Exodus narrative. And I'm suggesting that you won't understand your hope, your rescue, your call, you won't understand that unless you understand the rescue and the call and the hope of the Exodus. So that's the claim. This dynamic, this relationship between Matthew's explanation of Christ's work and the Exodus story is all over the book of Matthew. We've already dealt with it a whole bunch of times. I've listed here uh, all the chapters. Go uh, uh, One ahead, two ahead maybe. Yeah, these are all the chapters where it's either clearly implicit or explicit. But that's a lot of the book. That's, a, that's just a lot of the book. Matthew is constantly pointing back to the Exodus narrative. He's constantly referencing Deuteronomy and Exodus. And and that is on purpose. When you're reading Matthew, therefore, you need to bring your Exodus lenses. Okay, When you're reading the passages within Matthew, you need to read them through the lens of the Exodus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy is one of the first books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is an interesting book because it's actually a retelling of what happened before that book in the Bible. Um, and it's Moses teaching the people what what happened to them means. is a Beautiful book. Sometimes, if you're reading through the Bible, all your momentum dies in numbers. Which is sad because Deuteronomy is so good. Most of the time when Jesus quotes the Bible, He quotes Deuteronomy. Most of the time. Uh, so I want to I start this morning by reading Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. It's in on page 152 if you've if you got a pew by These are the words of God. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep His commandments or not. Pay pay close attention to this. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell. These 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Let me reread a few of those verses. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out and your foot did not swell. these 40 years. Okay. Okay. So, this is the Exodus story. So, you should read these words. As Moses speaking the commands of God, you should read these words and see a generation that has spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness. Now, that wasn't the original purpose. Originally, it was just going to be something like a six-week journey or something like that. I don't remember the exact time, but you can figure it out. Google it. Actually, it's probably a bad idea to Google it. There's a lot of bad stuff on Google. But it's going to be a relatively short journey, except when the people arrived at the promised land, they saw how big, I'm not kidding, how big the people were that were in the promised land, and they said, actually, God's not capable of doing this. And God said, fine. You want to stay in the wilderness, stay in the wilderness. However, in mercy and grace, he let that generation pass away in the wilderness while teaching and preserving a faithful generation that is, that is the recipient of this book. And, and then he's going to escort them over to the promised land, right? In mercy and grace is teaching them every step of their way through the wilderness what he is doing for them, what he is like. All right? And what does that teaching look like? I'm going to let you be hungry. I'm going to let you be hungry. And when you're hungry, I'm going to miraculously provide food from heaven. It's going to fall down. From, it's, you're going to wake up in the morning. It's just going to be there. You're going to have no idea what it is. It's just going to be there. And every morning, you're going to have just enough for today. Every single morning. And you know what? Your clothes, you, you should be worried about, you're walking through the wilderness every day, right? I i buy a T-shirt. I live most of my life in an office. I sit in front of a computer. I buy a T-shirt. Four months later, there's a hole in it. I've worn it like 10 times. So, so the, If anybody's going to be worried about clothes, it's these guys. And God says, I have kept your clothing free from tears for 40 years. You're inheriting clothing from your parents. Can you imagine? Like boogie nights. This is a joke. This is the 70s, you know. 40. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. So you're inheriting... <laughs> Thanks. You're inheriting clothing from your parents because God is so faithful to provide clothing in the wilderness. Okay. So God gave His people... Miracle food and miracle clothing. And he says, I humbled you and I let you hunger to teach you that. And this is the core passage. Actually, we already dealt with this passage in Matthew 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, man doesn't live by bread alone, but lives by God's word. Okay, and let me tell you what I think this means, right? This is contested. There's a lot of different approaches to this passage. Um, I think in our uh, out-of-context habits, sometimes we read this passage by saying, it's not just bread that I need, but I need to read the Bible, which is true, but I don't think that's what Jesus says and means when uh, when He's in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, and I don't think that this, that's what this passage means. Let me tell you what I think it means. I think it means that God is telling his people that they're not just sustained by bread, that is a means of their sustenance, but they are directly sustained by God's decree. God is, by his word, upholding their existence. He is sustaining them. Let me show you a dynamic that touches, or a passage that touches on this dynamic in Hebrews. Hebrews 1:3. Jesus is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And listen, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Right? By the word. How did God create all things? He spoke it into existence. And I think what God is teaching His people here is it would be madness to turn away from God for bread because God's Word is the only thing keeping you alive. Right? Make sense? So when these freed slaves are hungry in the wilderness, they're tempted to turn away from God's kingdom. They're tempted to turn away. You can hear this all throughout the Exodus narrative. Remember in Egypt when we had pots of meat? Boy, it was nice back when we were slaves. We got fed well. Well, I miss meat. Seems kind of ridiculous when you've got like a pillar of fire leading you at night, right? Like tempting. Anyways, um, so they're tempted to turn away from God's kingdom when they're hungry. But God says, every crumb that's ever sustained your life was granted to you by my royal decree. So when you're hungry, you shouldn't be turning away from my kingdom. You should be running toward my kingdom. My kingdom is the safest place for you because my royal decree is what sustains you and upholds you. Does this make sense? Alright. So the lesson, I think, of the wilderness is this. The king is your provider. The king of kings is your provider. So hunger should drive you toward His kingdom, not away from it. Hunger should drive you toward His kingdom. Need, desperation should drive you toward His kingdom. He is the source of all that's good. Your safety is in His presence. All right. Okay, now, I think we're ready to deal with Matthew 25. Turn back, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, verse 25. Turn back to Matthew 6. So Jesus, I think, by way of allusion, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew throughout the book, has placed us squarely in the wilderness. Right? We, If your story is a story of redemption, then, then you have been freed from slavery, and you have been bought by the blood of the innocent Lamb, and you have passed through the waters of baptism, and you are pacing through the wilderness towards the promised land. That's where you are. You are in the wilderness. A lot of the crazy doctrines that corrupt the church right now forget that we're not in the promised land yet. This is not the promised land. This is the wilderness. And in the wilderness, sometimes you'll be hungry, and sometimes your water bottle will be empty, and Jesus is teaching us why we shouldn't worry when that happens. So let's read this passage again. Therefore I tell you don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither reap nor neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right, so Jesus, I think, is giving us three reasons Why we shouldn't worry. Three reasons why we shouldn't worry. I've listed them here. First, you're here, aren't you? Second, God cares about the details. And third, God is your Father. Okay. Let's get into this. You're here, aren't you? Let me explain that. Jesus says is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, people have taken this a couple different ways. um, But probably the best way to take this argument is similar to an argument we're very familiar with. Namely, Paul's argument when he says, if God gave you His Son, how much more will He not graciously give you all things? Right? That it's it's that if He's already done this, of course He's going to do that. Right? The notion here is that you have been given life to this point. You still breathe. What a gift. Especially against the backdrop of your sin. Jesus doesn't hesitate to say, if you being wicked... Treat your kids that way? Don't you think the Father's going to treat His children this way? Against the backdrop of your wickedness, your existence is a dramatic gift from God. Uh, a dramatic blessing. He has upheld you and sustained you. Every morning when you wake, His mercies are new. You are alive enough to ask questions about tomorrow's food. And if he's given you that many gifts, second after second after second, of your being evil and wicked and rebelling against him, and yet he gives mercy and patience and he provides for you, then you shouldn't even think twice about what's happening for the next meal. Right? Does that make sense? You're here, so you have been given life to this point. And if God has given you, if He has upheld by the word of His power your life to this point, you shouldn't even fret about your next meal. Okay. God has proven in your very existence that He's capable to tend to tend your needs. He's capable to tend your needs. That's the first argument. Very quick, very simple. Second argument, God cares about the details. Listen, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Look at the flowers of the field. Look at how they're clothed. They're going to be in the fire tomorrow how much more will He clothe you? I think the force of this series of questions is to say that if God cares about the little details, like what that sparrow is going to eat for breakfast, then He cares about what you're going to eat for breakfast. You are His child. If He cares about the flowers of the field, how much more will He care about you? He's not too focused on the broad, general purposes of history and salvation to worry about the tiny details. That's limiting Him. He is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, which means He's thinking about it and He's aware of it and He's planning for it. Trust him. Trust him. Final argument is along the same lines. God is your Father. God is your Father. So he says The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. It makes sense for the Gentiles. Enemies of God who are not even aware of His existence to fret about the next meal, the next change of clothes. But not you. You are His people. You are His children. You have been adopted by the blood of Jesus. You have a vast and lavish inheritance awaiting you, and He has promised to sustain you and to keep you every step through the wilderness, into the promised land. And if that's the case, then it doesn't make sense for you to ask questions about how He does it. Right? God is your Father who loves you, so you should trust that He'll tend to your needs. You should trust that He'll tend to your needs. Okay? So Jesus is re-teaching, I think, the lesson of the wilderness. He's saying if hunger and thirst and material need tempt us to turn away from kingdom pursuits, it's because we've forgotten who our king is. If we are tempted by awareness of our need to turn away from kingdom pursuit, you have forgotten who your king is. Your king is your father. Your king is your father. He sustains your life. He knows your needs. And he meets your needs. And it's even more beautiful than this. If you took merely the words, I have a king who's my father, and he's going to give me what I need, period, and you took that outside of the biblical context and you find yourself missing a meal, you might think, "Did the foundation just crumble underneath me? Did, did, all that I believed about who God is and what He's doing is it just fall apart? But we know that sometimes God's sweetest gift is hunger. Sometimes God's sweetest gift is, is weariness. Because He's drawing us further into an awareness of who He is, and what He's done for us, and how He's sustaining us. He looks at His people and He says, I let you hunger to teach you. I let you hunger because I love you. My discipline is reserved for those who I love and who I've promised the kingdom. Right? So when when you take these words and you place them within the biblical picture of salvation... You miss a meal, and you're rejoicing in Christ. Praise God that I'm hungry right now because He has chosen to give me something that's painful to see my good accomplished. Amen? That knowledge should fuel your pursuit of the kingdom. The reason we are not sidetracked from the kingdom and kingdom pursuits is because Our greatest good is in His throne room. Our greatest good. So so we don't quit the work of the ministry because we're worried that we're not going to be able to uh, tend to our material need. That's nonsense. He is the sustainer of of our lives. He is the giver of every good gift. It's madness. Just like it would be madness to turn back to Egypt because they got pots of meat there. That's crazy. That's the force of this passage. Now, we are going to stop here at this this portion of the passage. And we're going to deal with some implications. And then next week, we're going to deal with what to do instead of worrying. Namely, seek the kingdom and the righteousness and trouble with today... And not tomorrow. Because allowing that application to sit there broadly is a minefield. There are a lot of bad teaching. There's a lot of bad teaching about seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What things? What things? Sufficient for today is the day's trouble. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You've got to take those things. And you've got to deal with them carefully because there's a lot of people who aren't. All right. So I'm going to leave that there for next week. We're going to look at about 15 different passages and, and, and try and nail down exactly what it looks like to seek the kingdom, one, to seek righteousness, two, and what does it, what does it mean that all these things will be added to you? What does it not mean, and what does it mean? And then this really kind of quippy remark, sufficient for today, is its own trouble. What does that mean? What what does that mean? So, I'm going to table that until next week. For now, I want to talk about how to shut down worry in your life. How to stifle worry are you a worrier i am do you know what's painful about preaching through the sermon on the mount god applies it one week prior <laughs> i just sit i was i sit in my office on thursday just worrying about something i was like oh How to stifle worry. I'm going to give you a a couple answers to that question. I think they're derived ultimately from this passage. You'll see what I mean. But before anything, you've got to call it what it is. Call worry what it is. Here's what I mean. Worry, anxiety, stewardship, and wisdom. Okay? The first two masquerade as the second two. Okay? Okay? The first two masquerade as the second two. And the second two are often called the first two inappropriately. Here's what I mean. You have to study the Scriptures and you have to be aware of the distinction between stewardship and anxiety. Or stewardship and worrying. You have been called to steward some people are going to hear this passage and think, boy, i got nothing to worry about. I haven't worried about anything in years. And it's because they're in sin. Because they don't think twice about their needs or the needs of their family or the needs of their extended family. There's a point in uh, Timothy where Paul says uh, that if you don't, Tend to the needs, if you don't prepare and tend to the needs of your widowed mother in law, you are less than a Christian, right? There are are many dynamics throughout the New Testament and the Proverbs that touch on your call to diligently work. Prepare for tomorrow in a positive sense. Uh, We have this. My wife and I were both uh, baristas at Starbucks a long time ago. And uh, uh, you get to know the value of your coworkers when you open. Uh, Because the closers, if they're good coworkers, make your open so much easier. But if you got guys who are just ready to go party, or I'm tired, I want to go to sleep, and they don't do what they're supposed to do, you show up at four in the morning, and it's like, oh. Now that's not the joke. We have a joke in our house where we wake up at seven, and we look around and say, who closed? (laughs) All that to say, uh, One way to steward well is to do what you need to do as a good steward to prepare for tomorrow and for next week and for next month. It is not sin to save for retirement necessarily. There will be a day where you probably, if God in His grace and mercy has sustained your life to this point, can't uh, take care of yourself in the same way you could do before. If you have the opportunity... To prepare for that moment, so you're not uh, 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 you're not you're not taxing other resources. Great, that's actually good stewardship, I think. Right? That's not what this is referring to. There's a there is a call to work hard and to do well with what God has given you, and then there's a call not to worry about what happens when you do that. You see what I'm saying? Stewardship is thinking about what you've been given and doing as well as you can possibly do with that and then sleeping well because you know that God is going to take care of you. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I say all this stuff is because a lot of us, a lot of us, when we're anxious or when we're worrying, we will call it Stewardship. I'm just, you know what? I'm just trying to be a good steward. I'm just trying to think carefully about tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month. If behind your calculations there is any sense of, oh no, that is not from God. That is unbelief. See what I mean? So, when you see the sense looming behind your calculations, when you find yourself returning back again and again to, well, what about, what are we going to do next week? What are we going to do next month? What are we going to do next year? And there's that looming dread. Call it worry. And tell your brothers and sisters who pray for you, I have been worrying a lot. I'm a worrying person because worry is a function of unbelief. I need to repent from that. You need to ask the Lord. It's such a sweet moment in the Gospels where God says, do you believe? And this Father says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. You pray that when you find yourself worrying. Say, I'm worrying, and I know what that means, Lord. Help me in my unbelief. But if you're not calling it worrying, you're not doing yourself any favor. So, that said, call it what it is. Second, expose the roots. When did you stop trusting God? Did you ever trust Him in this arena of your life? Do you trust Him for the things that you feel like are mostly going to work out, but for that one thing you care about? And often, it is precious things like your children. If you're crushed by anxiety about your children or about your employment or about even your church. Often we dress that up as good. It's not good. It's not. It's unbelief. If you're not trusting God to care for you in the areas and arenas that are the most important to you, then you're not trusting God in the areas that are most important to you. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. Third, stir up hope. God says, look, look, you've been given life to this moment. You've been given life to this moment. I think that's an insight into a dynamic that has helped me personally. I think it's helped all of us who are chasing after Christ and struggling with anxiety. Namely, you need to reflect on the grace you've been given. Reflect on the grace you've been given. You are here. And if you are in Christ, that means that you have to look forward to unspeakable mercies and unspeakable demonstrations, unimaginable demonstrations of God's love. You have been upheld despite yourself to this moment. Your life... Is punctuated by grace. Your life is, you, uh, I, I, so part of me hates doing this, but think back to what you were like in high school. Think back to what you were like in college or last month. God upheld you even then. He has been giving you grace upon grace. You reflect on that grace, it will shore up your confidence in His future. Grace. There is grace enough for tomorrow. If there's been grace enough to this moment. Okay. I love that God says, look at the birds. Look at the birds. I know, we're, from, we're in Texas, we shoot birds. And we eat them. That's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'll give you a hard time about it sometimes, because I don't shoot birds. Uh, funny story, I moved from Colorado, very different place. Denver is a very different place than here. Um, I moved down here to go to college. Uh, I, I started to unpack my dorm room thinking, I wonder what my roommate's gonna be like. Um, this guy walks in with a with a backpack. Nothing out he didn't like he didn't load his stuff into his dorm room for like weeks, so I thought it was pretty funny. But he walks in, like throws his backpack down. It's like hey, I said, hey, nice to meet you we Changed a few words and then he dumps his back out. It's all doves. Dead doves. Dead doves. Okay. This is that's way off topic. This is why I should manuscript. By the way. Um, I, I love that God points to creation. Because even the the most skeptical atheists will say things like all of our physicians, all of our calculus seems to have suggested that it should have fallen apart by now. Look at that bird outside your window. Right? Look at that beautiful bird outside your window. God is doing that. The trees, when the wind picks up in the trees, you get that beautiful noise after the rains and the smell. Those details are sweet gifts of God's provision. Think about that. And remember that He's the kind of God who provides. Make sense? And finally, remember all of God's rich promises. When you're in the dark closet of doubt and fear and worry, and you've done all these things, you're prepared then to reflect on what He has promised His people in Jesus. What He has promised His people in Jesus. Read Romans 8. Right? Reflect on the last chapters of Revelation. God's promises are brilliant and beautiful. And if He is the kind of God who can care for these little things and who has sustained your life to this moment, then he's the kind of God who's going to deliver you to the promised land. Amen? All right, let's pray and be grateful for that sweet gift.